This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of the uh, war in Ukraine. We're now uh, more than uh, five weeks into this war, and um, there's a lot that's happened, and it's often difficult to follow uh, where we are in this conflict. The conflict began with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and has involved uh, weeks of heroic resistance by Ukrainian forces with help from uh, European and the United States and other forces, um, and it's it's often hard to know where we are. And we're drawn joined today uh, by our colleague and friend, Dr. Michael Kimmage, who has been with us on a number of episodes to help to explain what's happening historically, but also to give us a sense of what's going on on the ground and how we can understand the events uh, in front of us. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy and Zachary. Uh, Dr. Michael Kimmage, as many of you know, is a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and chair of the Advisory Council for the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He served in the U.S. State Department on the policy planning staff for the Secretary of State from 2014 to 2017, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. So we're talking about familiar territory for Michael. He's written extensively on U.S. foreign policy, American politics and culture, including uh, his book, The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trillin, Whitaker Chambers and the Lessons of Anti-Communism, In History's Grip, Philip Roth's New York Trilogy, and Michael's most recent book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, a book that's become more prescient than I think Michael realized when he wrote it. Most recently, Michael is a co-author with Liana Fix of a collection of incredibly helpful articles that I recommend to everyone. They're available on the website for Foreign Affairs magazine. And it's a series of, of articles that explore what uh, Michael and Liana call the possible outcomes of Russia's invasion. These include include Ukraine wins, Russia wins, uh, a whole variety of different outcomes. And and we'll talk about some of those uh, in our discussion today. I encourage everyone to read them. We will have the link to those articles um, in the uh, liner notes in the description uh, for this episode. So uh, with that, uh, I think we're going to turn first to uh, our scene-setting poem, of course, from Mr. Zachary Suri. Um, What is this uh, scene-setting poem titled, Zachary? Thinking of the war on a Monday after returning from the capital. Okay, let's hear it. Yesterday, I heard the thunder rolling in from the northeast, holding onto the tops of trees and thrashing them viciously into the building. Yesterday, the rain flooded the streets and made the grass mud, and even the highways seemed green and lush because everything else was so blue. Yesterday, I heard the thunder rolling in, and I thought from the classroom window how I could almost hear the bombs falling in Mariupol. Yesterday, you will forgive me if I repeat myself, I am nowadays unable to remember the difference between now and then. I could hear the people sizzling in their own bedrooms, vaporizing into the sky, only to fall on us a few minutes later. 
cutting channels in the mud along the edge of the courtyard where you tiptoed with me and you laughed with me on the way to the cafeteria. On Sunday, I found myself at night looking up the great escalators at Rosslyn Station in Washington, climbing the seven stories into the sky. But when I was looking down a minute later, I wasn't even startled by the ground. It had sunken down into the earth below because I knew already what was behind me, because I knew what ghosts were chasing me up the stairs and out into the balmy streets. I love the imagery, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the ways in which uh, a war um, and, and, and human rights violations happening thousands of miles away from us can, can impact us emotionally, but also physically and, and literally in our daily lives here in the United States, and the ways in which we are connected as human beings to, to those suffering on the other side of the world. Do you feel that personally, Zachary? I think so, and I think many Americans do at, at this moment. Hmm. Michael, your thoughts on that point, actually? I, you know, I think that uh, Zachary, as ever, is onto so much with his uh, with his poetry, and uh, I think at the same time that he and I and you and many of us feel acutely the suffering that's happening overseas. I think one thing that I like about the poem is that it is, of course, also happening overseas. So there's the somewhat surreal quality of Washington in early May with the blooms and the flowers. And it's very much, you know, very manifestly not a city at war uh, at the moment in the sense of how one lives here and how one uh, operates here. Uh, And yet it's a city that is enmeshed uh, in so many ways in the conflict that's occurring thousands of miles away. So simultaneously, there's this feeling of connection and disconnection. And I think, Zachary, your poet, your poem just captures that beautifully. And and Michael, I I find with a lot of my students and friends and colleagues and, and scholars, there's the same kind of feeling that that we're touched and connected to this. But, but because we're so distant, it's hard to know what's happening. How would you describe the state of the war right now, more than five weeks into it? Well, it's a paradoxical war. I'll I'll be a little bit clinical. It's not that I want to pass over the war crimes and atrocities, but uh, uh, I'll just try to be as analytical as as possible. Of course, we spoke at the very beginning of the war. I remember it well, uh, Jeremy and Zachary, I think the day or the day after the war uh, started. And then, uh, you know, that was an extremely emotional uh, moment. And this is too, of course, but, uh, you know, there's a lot to think through and uh, and to analyze. So I think it's paradoxical. Uh, in a number of ways. Let me start with Ukraine and then turn uh, to Russia in terms of where these two countries uh, are. You know, I think that Ukraine now in roughly the ninth week of the uh, of the war is obviously in a much better place than it expected to be in the first week. Uh, it's possible, I think, to argue that Ukraine in some fundamental way won the war in the first week in the sense that it proved its own ability to survive uh, and it's gone from proving its ability to survive, demonstrating its political cohesion, uh, its morale, uh, to showing that it has real skill uh, and force uh, on the battlefield. That's been true uh, defensively, I think, to a really remarkable degree. Uh, there's one city, uh, maybe two now, I mean, Kherson and, and Mariupol that the Russians seem to have have conquered, but they haven't taken Kharkiv yet. Uh, they're you know very far from... Uh, from taking Kiev, and I think that the Ukrainians have really learned in the last uh, eight, nine weeks how to defend 
uh, their country. It's probably the most important story to be told about the war. And even beyond that, you see the Ukrainian army going on the counterattack. A couple of villages, some territory that's been retaken, uh, obviously in the north, but also uh, in the south. And I think that Russia really has to worry about, in a way that I'll try to develop in a moment, the scenario in which uh, it's going, you know, sort of being pushed back on the ropes uh, by the Ukrainian military. Uh, that may seem theoretically impossible to Russia, but uh, what's theoretically impossible can also be uh, a reality. So, you know, it's uh, not a paradox that Ukraine has done so well, but uh, it's a paradox perhaps that Ukraine has done well and yet is not in the position to win the war or to expel Russian troops uh, and uh, is clearly facing what looks like it will be a long-term conflict. I think the paradoxes on the Russian side are more, if anything, uh, more acute. Uh, you know, Russia possesses, obviously, uh, immense military force from nuclear on down to conventional capacities, air power, uh, sea power, uh, etc. And it's not as if that that force has been decimated uh, in the last nine weeks. The Russian military is still uh, up and running, and there are ways in which Putin can uh, renew it. But Russia has placed itself in a catch-22, where the way in which it is prosecuting the war is invalidating the political aims that Russia set for the war, which are either control over the country, I think that that's just out of Russia's grasp at this point, uh, or even influence over the country. So each day that the war goes on, Russia's political influence over Ukraine uh, diminishes. It's a case study in a counterproductive effort. But at the same time, Russia retains enormous powers of destruction, as, as Zachary's poem uh, suggests in Mariupol uh, and, and elsewhere. So they don't have the capacity to win the Russians. I think that the political aims that they have set for themselves are unrealizable. And yet they may have incentive and they certainly have the ability to keep on fighting. So there, too, you see a kind of paradox. I think the wrong word to use would be stalemate. I don't think it's that. But it's uh, at this stage of it, a somewhat paradoxical war on both sides. And and Michael, I'm, thank you for correcting me. I keep saying five weeks. This shows how quickly time is passing. As you say, it's yes. nine, almost 10 weeks now this war has been Correct. Yeah, twenty fourth of February. So yeah, it's, it's extraordinary um, how much has happened in in such a short time. Um, you, you make the point in uh, one of the excellent pieces you wrote for Foreign Affairs that Russia can't win. You don't think, but also you don't think Ukraine can push Russian forces out of uh, of their country. It, it, w w how would you explain that? It's, I think one of your paradoxes, isn't it? Yes, no, I, 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 I believe so. Now, I mean, there may be scenarios, and there are very serious military analysts who think in these terms. I mean, Elliot Cohen is the one who comes to mind, a former dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, who really believes that Ukraine can win, I think, in the, in the dictionary definition of the word uh, to win, which is to say it can achieve um, its independence along probably the pre-February 24 lines. I don't know too many people who think that Ukraine could expel Russia from Crimea or all the way from eastern Ukraine. Uh, maybe there are some who are looking into that possibility, but uh, I think there are those who believe that Ukraine can sort of take things back to where they were uh, on, on February 24th. Uh, I think that's going to be difficult. I mean, I think uh, this is a prestige war for Putin, so he's going to pour a lot into it to prevent that uh, outcome. And there's, of course, a military uh, dynamic whereby uh, it's a lot easier to defend than it is to go on the attack. 
So Russians have been on the receiving end of that logic for the first uh, eight, nine weeks because they've been the one on the attack. Uh, you know, I think the more Ukraine goes on the attack, the more they make it possible that they could outright win. But of course, the vulnerabilities become quite a bit, uh, quite a bit greater. And, you know, I'm repeating the analysis of others in this regard, but there are two different kinds of shortages on the uh, on the opposite sides of this conflict. Uh, on the Russian side, there's a shortage of manpower because they've lost so many soldiers and they've exhausted so many soldiers as well. Uh, and on the Ukrainian side, uh, there is uh, a shortage of uh, of ammunition uh, and of some of the tools that they need to fight the war. Now, that's being corrected day by day by the United States and other allies and friends uh, of uh, of Ukraine. But, uh, you know, I think that they're just not there in terms of they would have to be to expel an army like, like Russia's from their territory. It, then if Ukraine does win, either in the traditional dictionary definition sense or in, in, in a more sort of nuanced way, uh, to what extent do you think Ukraine's Ukraine will play a a, a bigger role in uh, in discussions of democracy and freedom in Europe, uh, but also in terms of American strategic goals uh, in the region? Sorry, that's a that's a very broad question. No, it's it's a wonderful question. Um, you know, again, uh, we do want to vex the word winning in this regard, but let's take the most optimistic possible scenario that through some combination of battlefield defeat, bad morale, uh, and just the politics of this whole situation, uh, Putin makes the decision to just pull out uh, and call it victory. And we can imagine, as people do, that Putin can use the propaganda apparatus in Russia to justify, in effect, whatever he does. So let's imagine he does that. I don't think it's the likeliest outcome, but uh, let's imagine that he... Uh, he does that, and Ukraine is really able to ensure its independence uh, and its sovereignty. I mean, I think that the next steps in that scenario are actually fairly clear. Uh, I don't think NATO re- is even relevant anymore, uh, in a sense. I wonder if it's relevant as we speak, because I think that Ukraine already has such a substantial military relationship with the U.S. and with the major military powers of Europe. I heard just a detail, but to me it was an impressive one last week that Norway has given its entire artillery to Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's only one country uh, in Europe. So Ukraine, if it can rid itself of this war, uh, is going to be a mini superpower in Europe and it's going to have the organic and direct support uh, of many of the world's leading military powers. So that's uh, a kind of remarkable turn of affairs. Uh, for Ukraine and all of the ambiguity under which they've suffered between 2014 and, and, and 2022 would uh, effectively uh, vanish. Now, democracy and freedom, I just want to be as candid about this as possible because in every respect, my heart goes out to the Ukrainians, but I also want to, uh, as an analyst, sort of characterize the situation as clearly as I can. I think that most Ukrainian soldiers at the moment are fighting for their homeland, certainly for their freedom uh, and independence. Uh, and it is, of course, the case. It's one of the most important details that Zelensky was democratically elected in 2019 and has the legitimacy that comes with that. So all of that is to the good, I think, is a foundation on which they could build. But Ukraine has had a lot of troubles since 1991 with rule of law, with corruption, uh, with governance. I don't think the war makes those uh, any easier to deal with. So it's going to have certain things to work on, certainly even in the optimistic military scenarios, to really uh, solidify and ensure 
it's democracy, but you have to imagine winning a war of this kind, you know, the experience of being David against a very ruthless Goliath has got to be uh, inspiring in a way that a politician like Zelensky or somebody like him could use to forge that democracy. But I see that as something that's there uh, shimmering a little bit uh, in the future. It's not something that the present moment guarantees. Right, right. And I think it's important, as, as you've said in many places, Michael, so eloquently, it's important not to get ahead of ourselves here. There's still a lot of uncertainty, as there is in any war, and particularly in, in this case. Um, what is happening now? It does seem from uh, at least Western news reports that the Russians are concentrating their forces more in the east, but also increasing the lethality of of their attacks on uh, Ukrainian civilians, on Ukrainian oil supplies. Um, is that accurate, and what effect is that having? I, th- I think it's quite accurate. I mean, I think it sounds hard for us to believe, having received the news of Bucha and uh, many other places where atrocities were committed, having seen the leveling of Mariupol and so many other urban areas uh, in Ukraine, it's hard for us to believe that the Russians have imposed any limits upon themselves in this war. But I think in the first phase, they did impose some. There's an article in the New York Times today that that sort of explores Putin's restraint uh, up to the present moment, such as it's been. Uh, And I think you're right, Jeremy, that that restraint is, uh, you know, that restraint in quotation marks, perhaps, uh, is starting to diminish. So, you know, I think from a Russian perspective, you know, again, the word winning uh, is a complicated one, uh, but they, you know, probably can't win as they had hoped to win, certainly can't win as they had hoped to win before the war. Uh, But they have many ways of inflicting long-term and serious damage uh, on Ukraine. And so the elimination uh, of uh, the energy infrastructure within Ukraine or the damaging of the energy infrastructure is one point. The bombing of rail lines, I think it's almost a matter of curiosity on the part of the U.S. and other countries that all of these arms are flowing into Ukraine, many of them over roads and rail. And why hasn't there been more of a Russian effort to disrupt that? I think that that's what you're starting to see this week and probably uh, in the weeks to come. And the way in which this war is potentially very, very difficult for Ukraine, beyond the ways in which it's already been very difficult, is on the economic front. So Ukraine is a trading country. It exports grain, other commodities. It really depends on access to the Black Sea. It's now under naval blockade. Uh, and you can just see that uh, the way in which the war is, uh, is, is, is going uh, is uh, a very serious degradation of the Ukrainian uh, economy. I mean, economic foundations are important for the prosecution of war. And so I think Russian military planners are now contemplating a kind of war of attrition, uh, a destruction of that economic foundation in hopes that that will give Russia certain battlefield and military uh, advantages. And that's not science fiction. I mean, that's an equation that's going to be difficult to, uh, to balance on the Ukrainian side. Is that equation necessarily to the advantage of Russia, though, because they face their own isolation, yes? Absolutely. So you have, it's like um, when you see pictures of the Situation Room in uh, in the White House, all of these different clocks, you know, different cities, different <laughs> clocks. And so this is a war that's running on all kinds of different timetables. And so the Ukrainian economy is a years-long timetable that really matters for the prosecution of this war. Of course, the war is being fought in terms of days and weeks, and you know, that's a more immediate matter. But the timetables for Russia are also, exactly as you're suggesting, Jeremy, are, are potentially very, very punishing 
for Russia and in two respects. You know, so we've seen a sanctions regime of a kind that has never been put on Russia. It's certainly far more uh, aggressive and robust than the 2014 sanctions regime. And as we know, with every sanctions regime, it's not the first couple of months uh, in which it kicks in. It's going to be the first six months, the first year. Uh, and, you know, I think especially when we hit the winter where, um, you know, uh, things could get quite difficult for Russia. And, you know, the politics of that is certainly something that Putin has to be worrying about. So that's a timetable. And, you know, you see that Europe is now debating removing itself from Russian gas and, and, and oil. It looks like a very serious conversation that's going on in the EU and Germany and elsewhere. And there, too, you could have a very big loss of revenue, uh, a, very, a very big hit to the Russian economy. So that's one sort of clock that's running quickly for Russia. But there's another clock that's maybe more important uh, uh, in, 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 in terms of the war. And this is the bind that Russia has put itself in by pursuing such a foolish concept of operations at the beginning and by fighting so badly, losing uh, perhaps tens of thousands of its troops, but certainly wounding that number uh, and exhausting many, many more uh, and, you know, putting its best troops forward at the initial part of this conflict and, uh, and eviscerating them. Uh, and so it faces uh, a diabolical choice from its point of view. Uh, does it come to terms having achieved nothing, really? That's a tough thing to imagine with Vladimir Putin. Or does it mobilize and draw up millions upon millions uh, of young men and women? That's certainly an option in a country of 140 million. But then... You know, you put the urban elite into the war in a new way. You affect the lives of tens of millions of parents in a very different way. And if Putin mobilizes, he cannot settle for anything small. He's going to have to get a big victory. And that's very, very, very far from being uh, guaranteed. So that's the timeline that's also, I think, very difficult for Putin. And then very finally, on this issue of timeline, if they do decide to mobilize, and it's a prediction of some that this will happen on May 9th, Victory Day, for the Second World War in Russia, mobilization is slow. So it takes maybe six to eight months to get the troops trained. By that point, given the flow of arms into Ukraine, uh, they're going to face probably double the firepower uh, on the Ukrainian side. So Russia has put itself in a terrible uh, military bind, and time is definitely a friend in some respects in terms of a war of attrition, but time is an enemy in many more respects. We've asked this, I think, on every episode we've done with you over the past few few weeks. Um, but but do you think as as Putin and as the the Russian regime gets more and more desperate, that there is a threat of escalation beyond the borders of Ukraine? I'm confident in my answer. Hopefully, I'm right, but I'm at the very, at the very least confident uh, <laughs> in my answer that this is not going to play itself out unless some accident really pulls Russia in this direction. And let's dwell on the detail that the city of Kharkiv in the eastern part of Ukraine still has not been taken uh, by Russia. This is a city that's really on the Russian border. Uh, it's a Russian-speaking city, whatever that means. It, you know, I don't think it means that the residents are pro-Russian, but, but still, if there was any city that would have been presumably easy for Russia to take in this war, it would be Kharkiv, and it hasn't been, uh, it hasn't been taken. And you have so many other setbacks Elsewhere, you have this manpower problem, and you have the internal politics in Russia, if the war is to escalate, that now they're sort of pretending that it's not a war, uh, and you can't do that if it becomes uh, something much uh, much larger. So they run the risk of that happening, of the war getting out of control, getting too big to handle, 
within the territory of Ukraine. That's a very real danger and fear that the Russians have to have or Putin has to have uh, with this war. So to me, it seems on that basis, a kind of insanity to draw Poland uh, or Lithuania or Hungary uh, or Slovakia or, you know, Bulgaria, that starts to sound really like science fiction, but to draw any of these countries into the war, not to mention giving any pretext for NATO as such to enter the war, because that would mean that the U.S. probably would go in much further than it's already gone. I don't see how that works in Russia's favor in any respect. So it seems to me like they would maybe choose rhetorical devices that could intimidate the populations of NATO member states, and that's where the nuclear threat comes in handy. But uh, I see no reason for Russia to go bigger than they've already gone. Uh, and I see no incentive and I see mo- no, no, no motive. So to that degree, I think terrible as this war is and has been and will be, we can draw a certain sigh of relief. Uh, Michael, what about the possibilities of the Russian army disintegrating? I mean, there's actually a long history of this happening to Russian armies. Um, and uh, there's some evidence of uh, Russian soldiers abandoning their um, their orders, um, selling their the fuel they have for their vehicles. Um, are, are we likely to see more of that? I would be a bit surprised. I think that you know Russia is now a dictatorship, and that means public opinion is a, a very very difficult thing to gain access to. But you know, looking at it from afar with the best evidence that we have outside of Russia, it looks like the war at the moment is maybe thinly popular, but relatively popular in the Russian uh, population. Uh, One thing I think that we can't underestimate, but doesn't get reported on in ways that we would feel on this side of the conflict is you can't underestimate the effect of, of, of the deaths and the, and the suffering of Russian soldiers on the Russian population. And of course, on the psychology of the Russian military. So like many wars that are difficult to figure out, to understand, it's hard to know, I think, if you're a regular Russian soldier, what exactly it is that you're fighting for. That may be true in the abstract, but when your comrade dies or your comrade is wounded, uh, then you end up fighting for your uh, for your comrade. So I think that, you know, for a couple of months, maybe even for a couple of years, I don't think that the disintegration of the Russian military uh, is uh, is likely, uh, and uh, you know, I think that there is perhaps a gathering fear in Russia that they've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind, that uh, the arming of Ukraine is really becoming a problem for Russia, uh, and there may be certain elements of, you know, sort of fear and worry about that point, and that could also be turned into sort of incentive to keep the war going or not to be humiliated or to be uh, outright uh, defeated. I think that those things happen. Certainly they've happened in Russian history uh, a number of times. Of course, World War I is the most important uh, example, but it's not been rapid. It's not been in the course of one summer that an army is disintegrated. I think it usually takes a kind of piling on of suffering and, and, uh, and incompetence and inefficiency and, and criminality, and then, it, and then it disintegrates. And what about on the other side? I mean, the Ukrainian forces, as you said so so eloquently before, Michael, have have fought in ways that are, that are extraordinary uh, in their effectiveness, in their courage, in their unity. Um, are, are we likely to see that to continue or, or, or are we likely to see um, more internal difficulties that so far we haven't seen many of from the Ukrainian forces? The difficulties I would anticipate for Ukraine are logistical. So if Russia continues to bomb fuel depots and 
uh, to, to menace transportation and to do those kinds of things, then it could be more difficult to run the war. For both sides of the war, it matters, of course, that Ukraine is a very large uh, country. I used to have a complicated way of configuring this. It's from you know Maine to West Virginia or from Illinois to, uh, to Virginia. I have an easier one, especially for your audience, Zachary and Jeremy. It's roughly the size of Texas, right, Ukraine. Right, right. Uh, which so, is very um, big. That, That's Which is very yes. big. It gives you a sense of how hard it is to invade, but it also... You know, it's not easy to run a war, uh, a defensive war in Ukraine because of the size of the uh, of the country. I see no indication that Ukrainian morale uh, is bad. I think to the contrary, uh, morale has been excellent from the very beginning of the war when things looked pretty dire for, for Kiev and Zelensky and for the country at large. Um, you know, you have the sinking of the Moskva, uh, which I think was a huge morale boost, the expulsion of the Russian armies from around Kiev, another huge uh, morale boost. And I think also the support, it's not of the whole world, but of much of the world has been meaningful. Uh, you see Ukrainian flags all over the city of uh, of Washington, was in Asheville, North Carolina a week ago, and saw lots of Ukrainian flags uh, there. Uh, it just indicates the depth of, uh, of, of the support that the country has internationally. Uh, and that too, I think, is a boost to, to, to the morale of the country. So I really anticipate no problems with uh, with Ukrainian morale, even if the war were to extend uh, a few years uh, into the future. We could turn our gaze, and I'll let you ask the question if you're interested, we could turn our gaze to the United States and to and to Europe and countries that are not directly involved in the war and ask about their depth of commitment and their patience and what might happen there over time. And I might have a few more concerns in that regard uh, than I do with, with Ukraine itself. So, so let's turn there. I think that is where we wanted to go next. Uh, part of the Ukrainian success so far in resisting Russia has been built upon uh, unprecedented support from the United States, from many European countries, particularly Germany, uh, from various other countries around the world. Is that likely to hold up? What are the challenges there? I think the challenges are uh, are significant. I do think it's likely to uh, to hold up for 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 two reasons i mean i think that the war is creating uh in the countries that are observing it those that have supported the sanctions regime so it's europe the us australia new zealand south korea japan uh, and a handful of other countries i think the war is creating its own rationale uh, in some respects we've gotten so used to russia as this master manipulator and this great producer of disinformation we're not accustomed to russia being the country that completely undermines uh, its political arguments by the by the way it conducts itself abroad. It's done that in part in past, but not as spectacularly as it's doing it now in Ukraine. So I think the war kind of argues for itself in some ways. And I also think that the West, we can use that term or whatever we can use to describe this coalition, I think it likes the feeling of unity and power uh, and leadership that it's demonstrating. I mean, who wouldn't really? I mean, you want to compare this to the pullout from Afghanistan. You want to compare it to the AUKUS submarine deal to sort of the less happy moments in the transatlantic relationship. Uh, what you're seeing now is something just much more formidable. And who, as at least for us, the residents of these countries, who wouldn't rather see strength uh, than weakness? And so I think that that may become something of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Uh, if the leadership succeeds, that too becomes a kind of rationale or justification for, for doing what's being done in this war, but I wouldn't want to be too sanguine about all of this because I see, you know, sort of two difficulties on, on, on the coalition side. One is that it's a coalition. Uh, and so there are a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and for especially the EU and NATO, I mean, if you get one Cyprus, one Malta, one Hungary, 
that starts to become a real problem, they can kind of chew up the uh, the alliance structures by um, uh, you know by sort of uh, making uh, making problems, making difficulties from. Uh, from within. So a coalition is only as strong as all of its constituent elements, and there are a lot of constituent elements. Uh, and that's a real worry of mine, that you just get one dissident or one uh, sort of errant country, and then we could have a, a much harder time with the sanctions or with other things that are necessary to help Ukraine. But I think the other concern is, is to me, more frightening, more sort of profound. And this is that the war is clearly going to have very severe economic implications for all of us, us in Washington, D.C., uh, for people coming up the subway steps uh, in Rossland, Virginia, for people in Austin, Texas, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and it's so easy for populist politicians to take advantage of that or other kinds of politicians to take advantage of that and say, well, great, we, go, we all support Ukraine, but how much do we support our own country? The kind of rhetoric that you saw uh, in France leading up to the election on April 24th there, of course, the pen didn't win the election, but you know, it's early days in the war. And I just, I think that there's going to be a lot more of that politicians, scrupulous, unscrupulous, who are going to try to use the use the war as a catch-all uh, and suggest that less commitment might be uh, more in the interest of of, uh, of, of, of these countries. And, and I think that could become quite tricky over time. Right. And this has to do with the rising energy prices, rising food prices, and various other yes. uh, basic commodities that come out of this part of the world that will be more expensive for all of us, uh, particularly in Europe, but for Americans and, and, and others too. Michael, are you surprised that there have not been more um, su successful cyber attacks coming out of Russia? I am. I thought that uh, there would be a much more um, uh, aggressive posture toward Ukraine. And apparently, I mean, I think everything is just being pieced together now. There were lots of attempts on the Russian side. And so Ukraine, I think, may have defended. That may be more the story uh, here than... Um, uh, Russian neglect is 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 the the quality of Ukrainian uh, defenses, but I'm very surprised that there haven't been bigger cyber attacks on Poland, on the Baltic republics, also on the United States, maybe on the UK. For some reason, the UK is the country that's demonized the most on Russian media, so uh, maybe that would be a likely uh, candidate. It's possible that Russia is holding certain options in reserve. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in that regard. Um, it's you know possible that they're not quite as you know brilliant at this as we assume that they were in 2016. You know I think that if you take a step back with cyber attacks, or maybe this is more active measures, uh, sort of a version of cyber attacks. Uh, if you take a step back, I think that they really succeed, and I have 2016 very much in mind. They succeed to the to the degree that we ourselves are vulnerable. So they succeed on the basis of prior vulnerabilities. I don't think Russia can create these vulnerabilities but it can exploit them. And it may be that this moment of unity uh, and of quite robust support uh, for the war is difficult to capitalize on. Now, you could always attack the infrastructure of the United States or the financial system or, uh, you know, really material parts of the country. But I think Russia has a certain reluctance when it comes to the U.S. because I think that the worry there is if they do it, the U.S. will just be like, okay, it's an act of war. We're going to go in. We'll, we'll just go into Ukraine. You know, forget this sort of three quarters support for Ukraine. Let's give them 100 percent support uh, and let's see how the Russian military responds uh, to that. So I think that they are in a, in a sort of tricky, uh, a tricky position for them uh, in that there's a lot that they probably would want to do. I'm sure that there's a lot that they're capable of, but they really don't want to push the U.S. Uh, or other powers directly into the war. So they may be stuck there. So a lot of what you're saying does sound like stalemate, Michael, 
But you said earlier on that you're not comfortable with that term. Correct. Yeah. No, I think it's not stalemate because uh, I think, you know, it's not impossible. It looks less and less likely by the day, but it's not impossible that there could be a certain encirclement of Ukrainian troops uh, on the Eastern Front. That's certainly what the Russians are striving for by moving up to the north from Mariupol and to the south from, from, from Kharkiv. So that's not something that is completely off the table or not in the cards uh, this summer. And that, of course, would be a big development in the war. Uh, and it's also not impossible at all uh, that Ukrainians could uh, punch through in a bunch of different places. Now, this famous land bridge that is spoken of from Russia to Crimea uh, as a Russian war objective, and I'm sure that the Russians would love to have such a thing. But let's again remember, I mean, sort of roughly estimate here, it's, you know, half the border of Texas in one direction uh, or another. Can you imagine how difficult that is to defend? Uh, and, you know, the very folly of the Russian war plan to go in with 200,000 troops uh, and to take on a country of this size means that a lot of the territory that Russia has taken is much less securely held than some of the maps suggest. You know, that's blocked out all in one color is the kind of Russian side, but it's not uh, honeycombed with Russian troops at all. So I think the Ukrainians have huge options. Uh, and the caliber of the weaponry that they're now getting, tanks, uh, artillery, especially from Germany, from uh, across Europe, from the United States, may mean that they really have the capacity uh, to go forward. Uh, and if we see how the Russians have been fighting so far, uh, you know, they might turn in terror uh, in retreat uh, in many places, in which case you also wouldn't have stalemate. So it's really not, you know, it's not that there isn't an element of stalemate at the moment, but there are ways in which that could be shredded very quickly in the next few weeks. And I guess looking forward, Michael, then uh, after that, I think very helpful description, I, I guess the natural question is, what what are you looking at in the coming weeks as we go from week 10 to 11, 12, 13? It's certainly clear from what you're saying that we shouldn't expect this to end anytime soon. So what are you watching? So of the three variables, the three core variables in this conflict, the first is Ukraine. We'll say the second is its allies and supporters. And the third is Russia. The first two variables, policy-wise, I think are set. I don't think Ukraine, I mean, obviously there are military decisions it has to make. Do they go on the offensive? Do they counterattack? If so, do they try to liberate Kherson? Do they, you know, go after some other target? Maybe do they continue making strikes within Russia uh, itself? Obviously, there are tactical decisions that have to be made of that nature, and those are those are up for grabs. But Ukraine's goal is, uh, it's elegant in its simplicity, is to win. To go back to the word that uh, you, Zachary, Jeremy, and I have been struggling a little bit to define here, but that's clearly their goal, uh, is an outright victory, to uh, compel the Russian forces back to where they were on February 24th, or even further back, uh, perhaps. That's not going to change as an objective, and they'll just try to get as much support and marshal as much force and energy to get there as they can. I don't think that U.S. or transatlantic policy is complicated at the moment. Sanctions, maybe more to come, you know, maybe really hitting energy soon in a way that people have been reluctant to do up to now. But uh, after the atrocities and after the successes of the Ukraine, Ukrainian military, that may become more of an option. And then just as much aid as possible. And you don't see a lot of disagreement on Capitol Hill about what the White House is asking in terms of military aid to, to Ukraine. If anything, the GOP seems to want to go uh, a touch faster than the Democratic Party. And, and European countries are lining up to do uh, the same. So that policy, I think, is set as well. And the objective is, 
you know, it may not be to win quite in the way that I think Ukrainians articulated, but uh, it's to support Ukraine to the maximal degree. That's that's the goal on this side of the uh, on this side of the conflict. So, what I'm watching is Russia. That's the third piece of the puzzle. That's the third variable, and I think there things are just a lot less certain policy wise. Uh, I don't think that the choices are very easy that Putin faces, but the key thing is that Putin faces choices. He really has to make a decision. Does he mobilize or not mobilize? If he doesn't mobilize, <clears throat> then the task he's going to be faced with is holding territory in Ukraine, much less territory than, than is going to give him sufficient diplomatic leverage. So that's a kind of tacit defeat in a certain way, not an outright defeat, but a tacit defeat. And that's what it means for, for Putin not to mobilize. Now, he can mobilize and maybe think of going back to Kiev in a kind of massive World War II type invasion uh, of the country, but that's very costly uh, in in different ways. If I had to bet, I hope it doesn't happen, but if I had to bet, I would bet on mobilization. I just think Putin can't tolerate uh, defeat, but that would be a huge shift <clears throat> in the war and it's a decision he's probably going to have to make in the next two to three weeks. So I think that the key variable, in a sense, is the mind of Putin, or if that's not if that's too reductive, then the key variable is just how Russia goes forward at this moment. They're the ones in the hot seat. But it's interesting, your description, and I think this was intentional, was, was Putin-centered. It's not centered on any other decision makers or actors in Russia. I continue to feel, um, not on the basis of good evidence, but I continue to feel that the war in the highest circles of the Russian government is quite unpopular. Uh, I think we all saw the grotesque Stalinist demonstration that was put on shortly before the war where people had to show their support. Uh, they looked utterly miserable. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of certainly the foreign policy elite didn't expect the war to happen until uh, until it did. Um, it may be that the mass of Russians, as I said earlier, is thinly, though uh, in a kind of majority, support of the war uh, that comes from Russian media. And I think just the sentiments of war uh, and supporting the troops and such. So, you know, I think that's there. But on the more elite levels of the Russian government, I do not think that it is a popular war. I don't think anybody has the courage or the ability to out-argue Putin or to show that they're disloyal and they're all living in fear. Uh, and that's, you know, why the repression that Putin has instigated is a very calculated kind of repression uh, to squelch disloyalty. But uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, the military likes this war. How could it? Uh, the military command. Uh, I don't think the economic elites of Russia like this war. How could they? They stand only to lose uh, from it. Uh, and in some ways, this is an odd argument to make, perhaps, but I think true Russian patriots uh, don't like this war. It's sullying the reputation of the country. It's attaching the country to a monstrously stupid uh, and, of course, uh, criminal enterprise. And who could, as a patriot, watch something like that happen uh, and feel good about the endeavor. So it's not that it's just one man's whim exactly, uh, but uh, it's very different from Crimea in 2014, where there was a consensus, uh, very different from the war in Syria, where I think a, a consensus emerged over time. Uh, and uh, in that sense, Putin is playing with political fire. But in the short run, which is to say in the coming weeks and months, you don't think that uh, dissent, which I agree with you, and I, I also agree that the evidence is is mixed at best, but assuming what you say is correct, and I think it is, you don't think it actually matters for Putin in the short run? No, because I think, uh, you know, it's like a political machine, uh, Russia at this point, that only Putin knows how to run. 
And uh, that's, I think, in the very nature of personalist rule. And one implication of that or one consequence of that is that uh, it's not in the self-interest of many people to, to disrupt it and to sort of overturn it. I mean, the question of Russian politics, I always think it's one Shakespeare play or another, but I don't know, I don't know which one it is. Uh, is it Julius Caesar? Is it King Lear? Uh, is it Coriolanus? I mean, it's, it is one of those plays. I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced. Or and, and over time, Or Macbeth. Over time, we'll learn. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that there are lots of enterprising princes uh, around Putin who think that they could do the job better and would like to get rid of him. But I have to say that the fear must be uh, must be tremendous. Uh, and the moment one enterprising prince shares a plan with another enterprising prince, I think both are in mortal danger. Right. Uh, and you've seen Putin in prison, somebody from his own intelligence services recently, uh, and I, I'm sure he would execute people if he felt it was uh, it was necessary. So no, I don't think uh, in the kind of peculiar climate that exists there that uh, a real rupture in the system is likely or perhaps even possible. Um, you know, here, I, I resist some of the parallels sort of Putin, Hitler, you know, sort of contemporary Russia, Nazi Germany, because they seem often pretty ahistorical to me. But you might want to think about resistance to Hitler in, in a way how hard it was, even though a lot of Germans on the high government levels knew that Hitler was was running the country into the ground. Right. So, so Zachary, you've listened to, to this discussion and Michael's really vivid descriptions of what's happening on the ground, what's happening in Russia, what's happening among the Allies supporting uh, Ukraine, and and back to your poem. Does this help to center your connection to this? Does it help to provide this context? And 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 how do you, as a as a citizen, process this? I, I think I think it's very helpful because it, it helps us understand where we are. I think the difficulty with such a protracted conflict, following such a conflict from from thousands of miles away as as I talked about uh, when discussing my poem is that you it, it's hard to keep up with what's going on and and not just the strategy the 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 statecraft but but how it's impacting people's lives on the ground so I think it's important that we as Americans stay in touch not with not just with the ideals that the Ukrainians are fighting for but but with what's actually going on. Um, so that we can we can best respond, but also so we can be aware of of what's going on in the world. I think that Putin is thriving on disinformation and and on lies. And if we can constantly inform ourselves, it takes a huge amount of power away from for, for, from from Putin's regime and and from the whole war war effort on the Russian side. I think that's very well said, M- Michael. I want to give you the last word on that point. You you've been putting so much energy, so many sleepless nights, I know, into writing uh, really remarkable things, including these four articles in Foreign Affairs that were just put up on different scenarios that that I've encouraged all our listeners to to read, and and many other things you've been writing and speaking in many contexts, including our own podcast, which we're very grateful for. What what are you hoping that our listeners will pay attention to going forward? So thank you for the kind words, uh, Jeremy, about the about the articles. I, I have two overriding concerns at the present moment, uh, and it's wonderful to have the chance to air them on your podcast and and and, and to share them with you because I suspect you have the same uh, concerns as I do. the The first one is how we can maintain what I would describe as moral patience, and you know it's hard to fathom, although I think we learn now what, what this means, that the Second World War lasted for six years. 
and the Holocaust, which does in some ways begin before 1941, but technically kind of begins in 1941, the Holocaust lasts for four years. It's awful to contemplate. Uh, it's it's horrific. Um, it tells us, of course, that these things do have an end, as this war will have an end, but they're very, very long, uh, and they wear us out. And I agree with Zachary about the disinformation that comes from Russia, but I think on par with disinformation is going to be Putin's effort to exhaust us, you know, our attention span uh, and uh, our ability to keep our focus and even our ability to keep our focus uh, when there isn't a happy ending in sight, uh, when there isn't an, an obvious arc, when the moral universe is not bending visibly toward anything that we can recognize, then I think we have to maintain moral patience and make sure that our concern for the humanitarian fate of Ukrainians in the country and outside of it as refugees is as uh, strong uh, a year from now or two years from now or three years from now uh, as it was at the very beginning of this war. We have to fight, I myself have to fight against the rapidity of social media, which builds in my mind narrative arcs that are, you know, 18 hours long. Uh, And I have to resist that myself and start to think in arcs of time that are much longer uh, so that I... uh, can retain a kind of moral patience uh, and argue for that uh, in the in the public domain. So that's 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 one point, and you know it's up to the organizers of podcasts and the writers of books and the teachers of courses uh, to stimulate that in in the people around us. Secondly, what I'm really concerned about, and I mean concerned in the sense of interested in or invested in, not worried about, uh, is excellence in U.S. foreign policy. I think the Biden administration has demonstrated quite a bit of that. Uh, So far, uh, I think the nature of the U.S. military support has been of the essence uh, for Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, the diplomacy has been high quality. Uh, That's what this team was, you know, sort of built to do. Uh, And I think in many ways they're doing it. I think foreign policy in in ways that you, Jeremy, and I have been discussing now for years does depend, though, on a virtuous cycle between domestic politics and and foreign affairs. And here, I think the Biden administration just has to be as vigilant as possible. It has to create bipartisan coalitions where it can on issues related to Ukraine. And it has to keep on making the case to the U.S. that we need to support these policies and that there has to be strong domestic support for these policies over the long term uh, for the policies to, to succeed. So, I, you know, I think that the outlines of the policy are fine. I think they're, they're making good policy. They really have to build in the domestic component, I think, a bit more uh, than they've done uh, and continue uh, with international audiences to remind them uh, of what the priority should be, why this is an urgent conflict, why it's a necessary conflict, and just sort of keep on uh, going with that. So those are the two things that are on my mind when I write, you know, moral patience and foreign policy uh, excellence, uh, and that will hopefully, you know, sort of be there in the debates and in the thinking uh, and the discussions that we're all having. You know, Michael, your your emphasis on those two elements, moral patience and excellence in foreign policy and diplomacy, uh, those are simple statements, but they're very difficult things mm. to follow through on. And um, in, in a certain way, they come back to the core of our weekly podcast here. You know, democracy is built on the the moral patience in a what is always a a messy system of trying to get it right after getting it wrong so many times and foreign policy in a democracy is fundamentally also about finding ways to work with uh, allies and and build coalitions at home among unlikely partners and and in some ways the 
the patron saint of our podcast, Franklin Roosevelt. These are the two things that were essential to his victory in World War II. And and I think you've put your finger on the, the, the eternal wisdom of these two areas, but yet the eternal challenge of pursuing them. It's, it's so funny that you say that, Jeremy, because as you were speaking, I was thinking of FDR in the following way, that Joe Biden, who I think has modeled himself in many ways on FDR, lionized FDR when he came to the White House in, in January 2021 as a domestic a domestic president, right? It was the pandemic. It was the economic dislocations, the difficulties of that. And I think Biden looked at FDR and said, yes, this is kind of 1932 and, and we need to uh, get the country moving again and sort of, uh, you know, bring that spirit back and use government to, to, to solve problems as FDR did. And, and it's not ironic. It's just interesting that this crisis in Ukraine, it's not equivalent to Pearl Harbor for the United States, but it's up there, uh, is really bringing back the wartime precedents and models of FDR. Uh, and you know, I don't think Biden quite expected that when he came into the White House, but that's what he's got. Uh, and so it's FDR, the patron saint of these two things, yes, of domestic politics and foreign policy. Well, and uh, that's a perfect note to close on because it, it brings us full circle to why historical perspective matters so much. Michael, you're uh, following the day-to-day in Ukraine and recounting it to us narrating and analyzing it for us is, is so helpful. And it, it shows the power of not only your expertise, but also your historical imagination to, to be able to contextualize and make sense of what is such a complicated situation. And as Zachary has said, providing us a foundation, a framework at least, for, for understanding what's going on. Uh, thank you for joining us, Michael. Well, I'll be content if I can find a foundation or a framework for one of Zachary's poems. So thank you so much to the two of you for your uh, your engagement in the topic, and thank you so much for your wonderful questions, and it's, it's always a, a joy to speak with you both. Now, the feeling is mutual. Zachary, thank you for your uh, moving poem, as always, and for framing our discussion with your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.